Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. On this week's edition, are you alert? The government's latest Covid slogan landed on Sunday, but what does it actually mean? And with Tory libertarians getting restless, is the PM really in control? Plus, if you thought things were bad here, what is Donald Trump's chaotic response to coronavirus doomed to America and his chances of re-election? UCL Global Politics professor and host of the Power Corrupts podcast, Brian Klass, joins us to unpick the presidential whims from the misinformation. And in a world of clap for carers and spontaneous altruism, is this crisis proving an anticlimax for doomsday fetishists? All this and more in today's bunker. Hello. We hope you enjoyed last week's live stream with Romaniacs. We had over 600 people signing in. It was great fun. If you missed it, there's video of the event on our new Patreon site. Sign up to support us for as little as £2 per month. You'll get access to this and future live streams, plus every podcast with no adverts and mugs and t-shirts too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now let's meet the panel. We were planning to record this episode while standing two metres apart in a garden centre car park, but after last-minute clarification from number 10, we learned that podcasters are specifically required to stay at home. So, returning to the bunker via the magic of Wi-Fi, we have the editor of LSE Brexit, Ros Taylor. Hello, Ros. How are you? Oh, I'm very well. Try not to um, drink too much, you know, usual. <laughs> we'll discuss the government's change attack later, but it's obviously designed to give people some kind of hope or narrative after eight weeks of stasis. Did it have that effect on you or did it achieve the opposite? It did a little bit, I confess, because um, I'd been hoping for some sort of roadmap, um, as indeed, you know, Keir Starmer and uh, the opposition have been calling for for quite a while. And we did finally have a sense of what can happen if the infection rates continue to keep under control. So from that point of view, and don't worry, I will be criticising the government plenty later on. Yes, it was a it was mentally a relief for me. <laughs> also back on the bunker is stand-up comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. What have you been up to in the, the seven weeks since we've seen you? Anything much? Hello. Uh, well, I have been uh, <laughs> I've been uh, staying at home, protecting the NHS and saving lives, uh, much like uh, much like many of us. Uh, but yes, I've been um, working on a television show, The Mash Report. Uh, we did six episodes uh, over the last six weeks, and yeah, it's very odd to make a topical comedy show where there is one news story and none of you are able to see one another uh, in person. But we somehow managed it, and it uh, it went off with comparatively few hitches. So I was uh, quite happy about that. Did um, the socially distanced VE Day conga line make you proud to be British at this difficult time? I am always extremely and performatively proud to be (laughs) British uh, in an effort to avoid getting uh, what uh, we in the community refer to as absolutely wind rushed. 
did you think we were all perhaps this was a sign that we were or going a bit weird um that it just like our brains had slightly melted if we were doing ve day congas it, it would it, it would be considerably weirder if we weren't all going a bit mad like surely in these sorts of circumstances i think that that's the only rational uh way to go and uh, i suppose you know socially distanced uh congas are at least preferable to eating the neighbors that would be no tribute cannibalism would be no tribute to the war dead would it <laughs> that's not that's not what they died on the beaches of normandy for our special guest today, back for more, is Assistant Professor of Global Politics at UCL and host of the Power Corrupts podcast. It's Brian Klass. Hello, Brian. Welcome back. Hello. How are your students faring in the lockdown? Is there way, can you, how do you give them some kind of closure on the academic year when it's sort of snatched away? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because especially for our first years, so our first years just had all of their exams and assignments cancelled. So all of a sudden, at the end of March, they were told, you're done, right? You, you just automatically go on to year two. So we're trying to do what we can. I mean, I, I actually gave a Zoom lecture yesterday on uh, Trump and some of the craziness that he's engaged in. And we have something like 100 students on our program and 80 of them signed on to the Zoom. So I think they're pretty starved for contact. And, you know, they're all over the world and all different time zones, everything. It's a very, very tricky time for higher education. Um, you've just finished season two of Power Corrupts podcast. It's one subject per episode. Among this season's lighthearted topics are pandemics, biological weapons, and catastrophic miscalculation. Um, our entire life right now is a sort of ongoing pandemic episode. How did you decide what angle? What angle have you taken? How did you? Dis- what was going to be your way in on the topic that defines everything? You know, it's funny. I, I I released the episode list in like January, and I picked pandemics and biological weapons then. Um, so I, you know, I was sort of one of those things where I didn't throw this together as soon as COVID-19 happened. And so I was looking at pandemics from a broader perspective. There's stuff in there about the coronavirus, but, uh, there's some crazy stories, dancing plagues throughout history where people start dancing in medieval villages. And then all of a sudden there's a sort of mass hysteria that happens and hundreds of people join them and, and various villages hire effectively the 15th century version of a spin instructor and force them to keep dancing because they think that it will stop them from doing it if they dance it out. And then in the, so the, v, the VE one, day Congo was no surprise to you then. Well, exactly. <laughs> it's just the sort of 21st century analog to this. And then in the uh, biological weapons episode, you know, it got me thinking, what if somebody could unleash this deliberately, right? And there's insane stories from how the British government accidentally dropped a plague bomb on a fishing trawler in the 1950s. Um, and also the sort of very bizarre futuristic stuff where there is U.S. military development to effectively create uh, insects that act like Ubers for viruses to wipe out crops and also genetically edited viruses that can be tailored to a single individual for assassination. So lots of really, really weird stuff in the world of pandemics and biological weapons. I'm going to sort of uh, nail my colours to the mast and say I think that we should not do any of those things. (laughs) Now, apologies if we sound a little fatigued today. We've all been staying alert since Sunday evening and we're very tired. 
The government's new slogan was greeted with derision on Sunday, and ministers were forced to go on TV to explain it at length, which is always a sign of an excellent slogan. Boris Johnson's televised announcement on Sunday evening about loosening the lockdown raised more questions than it answered as the public struggled to understand the new measures. Even cosy breakfast TV stalwart Philip Schofield was driven to use the phrase, arsed it up. To paraphrase Lyndon Johnson, if you've lost Schofield, you've lost Middle England. Roz, what did you make of Stay Alert, Control the Virus, Save Lives, and the thinking behind it? Well, it's fucking risible, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, it's just, I can see what the intention was. The intention was to switch from the fear mindset, which the government has been putting forward for the last few, uh, last couple of months, basically because our lockdown was less strict than that in some other European countries, and we haven't been prepared or ready, whatever, to enforce it via huge fines, police on the streets, uh, police on the streets in enormous numbers, partly because we don't have enormous numbers of police anymore, or soldiers, because we didn't want to do that. And we know now from SAGE that the, they recommended that the government not do that. They basically went for a mixture of fear and social obligation and, you know, social shaming and, all, and, 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 and a hope appeal to people's better instincts. The trouble with that is that then you have to switch out of a fear mindset to something that you might loosely call a caution mindset. And that's very difficult to express in any meaningful way. So they came up with stay alert, which, as we all know, when confronted with a, with a threat of a virus, is pretty damn meaningless. So that's, I think, the problem that they've encountered at this point. Well, they've also dropped Protect the NHS, uh, which some people criticise. Newsnight's Lewis Goodall reported that several doctors had told him that the slogan had sort of outlived its usefulness uh, because it was now discouraging people who needed medical help from seeking it. Um, and that if you die at home, it doesn't matter whether you died from COVID-19 or, or something else, if, it, if it's sort of caused by, um, by the situation and by kind of being sort of almost scared to bother the NHS. Do you agree that that part of the slogan was perhaps... Uh, time to update. Yeah, it was because uh, apart from the fact that people clearly aren't going to A and E in the same numbers or seeking help from GPs in the same in the same numbers, they're basically avoiding hospitals. Apart from that, everyone can now see that the Nightingale hospitals have been stood down. That the NHS is not under the kind of pre- uh, the pressure that it was. So it just that 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 part of the slogan it did make sense to drop it. Um, what did you think of Starmer's response? To it was to good. It was, it was very much a um, reasonable man, happy to work with the government. Um, that was right for the times. And that's the balance that he's got to get now between uh, making sure that he doesn't come across as opportunistically criticising the government, but managing to land, land the criticisms where they matter. I mean, one of the kind of things he didn't get into because um, because it probably wouldn't look good is is the reports that this is uh, reveals another civil war brewing in the Tory party between libertarian hawks and, and lockdown doves. That's the way they've been sort of divvied up. Um, is the new policy uh, too heavily informed by the traditional Tory need to uh, to put party before country? and just kind of hold the party together. That's undoubtedly an element in what's going on. I think, actually, it's slightly more complicated than that. It's not libertarian versus lockdown. There are also people like Rishi Sunak who are very much 
stressing the economic costs of lockdown. And if the Tory party was a different kind of party, there would also be people stressing the social costs of lockdown and what it means to what what it means particularly for poorer people. Uh, It's not that kind of party, so they're not. And we don't have the kind of press, sadly, for the most part, that is doing that. But it's like so. It's, I think it's slightly more complicated than those things, and, and all those all those elements of the party overlap as well. I don't think you can necessarily tease them apart into that into that binary. I hear. Have you been staying alert, exercising, and unlimitedly while avoiding the clubhouse? Uh, well, I've uh, I've been avoiding the clubhouse uh, for all my life. Uh, really, I, I, I think that um, there used to be signs suggesting that I wasn't allowed in. But um, I, I, I don't really mind the advice of staying alert. Sort of, I, I feel as though, on the one hand, I think it makes sense to me, but obviously. Everyone would think that, and I suppose to a certain degree, it is a way of sort of fobbing off blame uh, to the individual uh, if they if they mess up. Uh, but certainly, like I, I don't think that anyone is reading "Stay Alert" and interpreting it as "Hooray! Once more, I can be balls deep in a pangolin." Uh, that's uh, you know that's 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 unfortunately going to have to be put off till a later date uh, and. God knows I can't wait until that day comes uh, again. Um, but yes, it's, it, the, the part that I've found more troubling is uh, the, the notion of controlling the virus, right? Because uh, sort of staying alert is something that certainly I feel that I have the capacity to do. Uh, but there, there are sort of things, in, there, are, there are elements in everyone's life that are obviously beyond our individual control. But I think that this in my entire life has been the thing that on a global scale, I have been most acutely aware that everyone internally realizes they have pretty much no control over. Uh, and so every time I see the words uh, sort of uh, control in association with this, I'm just uh, reminded of the extent of all of our impotence uh, in the face of it. And that's quite an overwhelming thing. Hence the tear duct exercise. <laughs> it was like it was left over from the Brexit slogan. They went, control worked. Can we yeah. can we use control again? And it's like <laughs> not with a virus. You can't. I no, mean, the virus is tragically uh, unfazed by untruths on the sides of buses. It doesn't listen to the will of the people at all. Yeah, it's a, it's an elite. It's an it's a globalist elite. The virus. <laughs> um, in the comments, Johnson talked repeatedly of trusting in good old British common sense. Uh, sort of any time he was asked to put more kind of detail. <laughs> on the bones. Um, is good old British common sense quite the bottomless resource that he thinks it is? I don't know. Like, uh, I, uh, I associate good old British common sense with every time a mate has said to me, go on. Uh, and that, <laughs> it's never been advisable. <laughs> so <laughs> I, d- I don't think it is quite that bottomless pit. Brian, this announcement was previewed in the papers on Thursday, which means it sort of broke Wednesday evening. Uh, which meant lots of people went and enjoyed their sunny bank holiday weekend. Then even the speech on Sunday didn't provide all the necessary details, which have kind of been drip, drip out since, caused massive confusion. When you're looking at this, do you think this is a, a strategy or a mess? And, and if it is a strategy, what is it? Well, I, I think it is a mess in terms of how they rolled it out. Um, <clears throat> you know, you should never have speculation about what 65 million people can and can't do via leaks. I mean, that's just, it's a terrible public relations strategy and it's worse governance and public policy 
So I think, you know, I mean, I think from that perspective, it was a disaster. And, and the way that they did it on a Sunday evening, where inevitably there were millions of people who were thinking like, okay, so am I supposed to go to work in like 12 hours? Right. I mean, that, that was not, uh, it was not wise. And to not even have, I mean, the ministers who went on TV and radio interviews and just got flayed by people like Michelle Hussein on the Today program, um, because they didn't prepare for basic questions that every person wonders, right? I mean, whenever you have something like this that that affects every individual's daily existence, every question is going to be, can I do this? Should I do this? Can I do that? And and to not even have prepared answers for simple yes-no things about family visits and things like that uh, just showed a really big lack of preparation. But I do think that, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in a moment, but I will say, you know, as an American who watches, unfortunately, both sides of the Atlantic politics very closely, it can always be much I'm worse, so sorry. I can assure you. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Um, and we will also be talking later about, you know, sort of conspiracies thinking. Um, now, what I noticed was that there were certain people um, who were convinced that the fact that uh, the, the color scheme had gone from red and yellow to green and yellow was a kind of subliminal kind of nudge to go. The idea being that this was sort of herd immunity by the back door and that the herd immunity strategy hadn't been abandoned and that by relaxing, by making everything so confusing, it encourages people to break the lockdown and then sort of develop herd immunity without anyone talking about it. Now, that that to me sounds far-fetched, but do you think that in this situation, if you don't, there's so much importance placed on uh, making information clear because if you don't, not only will there be criticism, but there will be sort of speculation. It just seems that every gap that the government leaves is just filled with the you know the most kind of uh, unforgiving speculation. Yeah, and I think I think that when people are getting government advice, right? I mean, there's a lot of people in the country who don't care about politics, never tune into statements by the prime minister, never watch the news. And now they have to, right? So for some people in the UK, this is the first time that they've had to actually think about government directives in their daily life. And to have any ambiguity is, is going to leave this open to disaster because, of course, everyone's impulse is to do the thing that is reckless because that's the thing that is how we used to live. And so anytime you don't directly say, do not do this, a certain percentage of the population will do it, right? And so I think that uh, the sort of good British common sense assumes that everybody has the same set of facts before them, which we absolutely do not, and also assumes that everybody is equally willing to give up certain freedoms in order to sort of protect the collective good. And again, a very big assumption. So, uh, you know, my attitude on this one is just be very clear with people, treat them like adults and say, look, this is what has to happen. Here's what you can and cannot do. And here's the reason why, right? I thought the the really interesting thing for me has been with masks, because I don't understand why they don't say, look, it's a modest benefit. You can't, you can't rely on a mask. Don't buy them because you're, if you buy them, you're going to take away from the NHS, but you can provide modest protection for your neighbors if you wear them, say, in a grocery store. If people leveled with them, uh, with citizens about how to behave, I think a lot of Brits would respond really well to it, as opposed to this sort of like cat and mouse game, of like we might leak something, we might tell you something, you'll have different information from Minister A on the Today program and Minister B on Channel 4. That is just not a good recipe for 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 transparent governance or getting people to follow your directives. 
I think that's absolutely absolutely right, right. And I think the evidence that I've seen so far shows that what when people are thinking about the media, they're very good at spotting conspiracy theories and the 5G crap and all that sort of thing. But now they're saying, well, the information I'm getting from the government is really confusing me. I'm getting misinformation from the government. And when you've got to that stage in a democracy where people feel that the government is playing with them and misleading them and being partial, that is a very frightening point. Did it strike you, therefore, that, you know, there is a reason why in a parliamentary system we have, you know, parliament to thrash out policy? We don't have a televised, we don't have leaks followed by a televised address, followed by a lot of conflicting, scare quotes, clarifications on the telly. Yeah, absolutely. And I find it particularly worrying that the uh, opportunity of a journalist to question the prime minister and question senior ministers has been cut again this week. Um, with more questions from the public and fewer from journalists. It's it's kind of, it, it plays into the worst aspects of populism to say that the people are, should, should, should do it and you can cut journalists out. That is quite scary. Behind the slogan, what do you think of the actual timetable of unlocking? They're talking about primary schools from the 1st of June, then pubs, restaurants, hairdressers, aspects of the hospitality industry from July. Um, obviously, you know, they're saying provided that the R rate is kept sufficiently low and that it is safe to do so. Um, do you think any of this will actually happen at those times? It seems optimistic. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think we that puts us three weeks behind France. We locked down one, uh, we stopped, uh, school stopped one week um, after France. So that's already putting us behind. And of course, the severity of our outbreak made that inevitable. I don't think it's wholly unrealistic, providing that they can um, learn from other countries about how they're reopening schools, how best to do it. There's signs that they're beginning to think about that, but there hasn't been nearly nearly enough thought given to that yet, as so many people have pointed out. I think there has to be an, a concentration on the services that are important and matter to people. And there is too much focus, you know, on the pubs, on the restaurants, on the garden centres. We haven't heard anything, for example, about dentists. Dentists are hugely important. There are lots of people in a lot of pain right now because they can't get dental treatment. Things like ophthalmologists. We don't hear about those things. It's not a sensible way to run a country to blither on about garden centres and totally, you know, totally ignore dentists. Um, I think... Yeah, I, I think they've got the balance right in terms of primary schools because primary kids need the supervision. Primary schools opening means that kids, uh, that children, uh, children's parents can go back to work, which is a prerequisite for many of them for being able to do any work at all outside the home. And you have to remember too that there's this kind of, oh, you know, homeschooling's great. They're running into the garden, then they're doing work on their iPad and it's all fun, fun, fun. It's not like that for most people. It's really not. Um, we're in danger of imagining that it is. Only about a third of kids, as far as we know, are getting any homeschooling at all. And if they don't go back in, in June or July, that's six months without any homeschooling. And for a kid who's stuck in a tiny flat with a parent who's just depressed because they lost their job and they can't go out, that is torture. And we should be thinking about that and trying to incorporate that thinking 
into policy and not banging on about people's leisure occupations, which are frankly less important. Roz, I feel as though every so often someone says something that really drives home how fucking stark this entire thing is. And like, I'd not thought about the whole dentists versus garden centers thing before. And now I have. Firstly, it's made me desperate to want to go to the dentist, which has never happened before. Uh, But uh, also you're like, yeah, that is really bleak. Oh, God. And schools were one of the things that didn't come up in, in, in sort of what Matt Lucas parodied as Boris Johnson's go to work, don't go to work message was, you know, obviously that's a major, re- that is the biggest factor about whether you can go to work or not. It's not actually transport. It's for most people, it's like, do you have kids that you have to look after at home or not? And it tells you a lot that the construction and manufacturing industries have been told they should go back as of uh, yesterday, I believe. Um, And uh, naturally, there's no childcare. So um, we all know who's going to be um, picking up the slack from that, don't we? Uh, It's all about men. And uh, the men can go back to work and the women can stay at home. And it's a dangerous mindset to get into, to think that there is an unlimited supply of female labour ready to take the financial hit of stopping work, that they are infinitely flexible, that they can do make it all happen so that the men can go to work. I find that quite worrying. Two more things before we move on. Uh, here, England's currently odds with the rest of the union on the advice being given. If an SNP MP, Angus McNeil, has called for police in Scotland to patrol the entire 96-mile border with England, which is possibly a troll patrol, um, <laughs> just to wind us up. Is, are we sort of, is it, do, could we end up here with sort of fed, um, federalism by mistake? Just simply well, by not consulting these other countries, that everybody's got their own policy. To, to a degree, I guess it does make sense, right, to have, for example, like if, if the outbreak was happening, it, say at some point in the future we get to a situation where there's problems still in London, uh, but if you're in a village very far away from London, like I, I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with having some degree of geographical specificity uh, towards what um, uh, how, how you're administering uh, lockdown now that we have the sort of technological and uh, communicative capacity to do that. Uh, I, if anything, uh, support the uh, heavy-handed policing of the Scottish border just to ensure that the Edinburgh Fringe doesn't find a way to still occur uh, this year, it, despite <laughs> despite the fact that they have officially called it off, I'm sure that somehow over the course of the next few months, several thousand pounds will vanish from my account into the pocket of a landlord uh, without me being entirely aware of how. So yeah, I say I say lock it down. I, I like say the, I like the idea machine of machine guns on Hadrian's wall, baby. Troops. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like holding pens for sketch troops. <laughs> Brian, finally, the plan to quarantine people arriving in the UK seems long overdue. I think I think quite a lot of people actually thought that it had already happened. It's still yet it's been talked about now, but it's still yet to take effect. Do you think it will still be useful at this stage, or is it just has that, has that horse bolted long ago? Yeah, I mean, I sort of I have a somewhat counterintuitive view on this. I think, which is that I I actually think it makes sense that they're bringing it in now, and the reason why ah. I think that is because during the peak the proportion of new cases that were happening in the UK coming from overseas were very small, right? It was a very small number relative to the ones that were spreading in the community. And as the community spread declines, 
the number of new cases as a proportion of the total cases coming in from overseas will increase, right? So it's actually more effective the fewer cases you have, which is why, like, if you think about New Zealand, like, their focus right now is totally on the people coming into New Zealand because it's all about stopping new cases. Whereas if they had rampant community spread, it's like, well, what's another one? You know what I mean? It's like, it's all, it's all this already here anyway. Um, and I think that was what happened with Trump as well, was he was focused uh, during the period of community spread on shutting down travel from China and trumpeting how great that was. And it was already, you know, just running wild through New York. So it didn't matter. As the peaks con- you know, continue to decline in various countries, the importance of stopping cross-contamination between countries actually increases rather than decreases, in my view. So I think it makes sense, but it's going to be devastating for the airline industry. And it's going to be very tricky for shipping and freight because, you know, when people come in for short periods of time, what do you do? I mean, they, they can't quarantine for 14 days. Whatever happens in the UK, we can at least look to the USA for a place that's handling COVID-19 even worse than we are. In a week in which Donald Trump cut funding to coronavirus research, his surrogates claimed that Democrats were inflating the death toll for political purposes, and American deaths from the virus reached 80,000, it's beginning to look like Trump might not be able to tweet this crisis away. Senate Republicans are worrying that he's endangered their majority, and CNN described Joe Biden's lead in the presidential election as the steadiest there has ever been. Although, let's not be hasty. We've been there before. Brian, he's escaped so many kind of, uh, you know, turning points, reckonings in the past. Um, are there strong reasons to think that this is one that that really is going to take him down? Yeah, I actually think there is. <laughs> I've got cause for optimism for the first time in a long time um, with, with American politics. And the reason for this, so the question that I usually get asked in British media is, will his base finally abandon him? That is totally the wrong question because he was right that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his base would not abandon him. It's, you know, it's an actual quote from the campaign that he could do that. He's right. And 25 to 35% of Americans will vote for Donald Trump no matter what, right? He could strangle a kitten and they would do it. Um, but there is a proportion above that that he needs to win. And you know he needs to have somewhere in the vicinity of 45 to 50% of the vote to beat Biden, depending on whether there's a third party candidate. Now, the reason why I think this is the one, the pandemic is the one, is because in 2016, he won with two very important blocks of voters. One was people who cared most about the economy and figured, oh, he's a businessman, he'll do great, even though they ignored all of his bankruptcies and terrible companies, et cetera. Um, second thing was he won, he beat Hillary Clinton by 10 points among 65 plus voters, right? So the diehard voters, they, they vote like clockwork. They voted for Trump by 10 points. The pandemic drives a wedge between those two blocks. Trump can't have both anymore, right? Because if he tries to reopen the economy early, which is what he's trying to do, he's seen his support decline among older voters. And so if he only wins that by, say, 5%, well, that's millions of votes he's just lost. And on the other hand, if he follows public health advice and protects the older voters who are most vulnerable to COVID-19, then the economy gets hit harder. And he loses those voters who are voting for him solely because of his business acumen or supposed business acumen. So I think he has an unsolvable problem with that. And Biden, of course, can just hit him on both, right? Because Biden can say, look, you're doing a terrible job on the economy and you're doing a terrible job protecting elderly people. And uh, older people like Biden because he's one of them. He's 78 and, you know, 77. And so, uh, you know, I think Trump has a very serious math problem on his hands. And we all know that's not his strong suit to begin with. Well, his approval ratings have fallen, um, his, and his sort of big advantage of a booming economy is gone, that even if you open the economy tomorrow, uh, it, it's, it's going to be 
severely damaged. And that takes away, um, you know, one of his, what would have been one of his campaign lines in the election. What do you think his strategy is going to be? I mean, I don't know, maybe is racism and crazy talk a strategy or will there be some other angle? Is it just going to be all about tearing Biden down because he's actually got not much to boast about himself? Well, I think, you know, I mean, this is where I think he's really in trouble is that he's run a base only presidency, which means he, what he does every time he's in trouble, he tries to throw red meat to his political base and make sure that's rock solid, which is why he's always had an approval rating between 35 and 45% for almost the entirety of his presidency. Um, and the problem is that that's not going to work for the election, right? And you've seen, I mean, people just tune out the tweets these days because they're so, you know, insane. But on Sunday, on Mother's Day, he tweeted a hundred, and I think it was 124 times. So it was like, you know, something like once every five minutes. And most of the tweets are nuts. I mean, they're conspiracy theories. They're promoting all this stuff about how Obama committed a series of crimes that aren't actually real. And so, you know, he's been tweeting about Obamagate, which is a conspiracy theory that he's basically invented. And, you know, the base loves this, right? The, the base is like all in. They're, they're retweeting this stuff. But like the person who lost their job, who sort of thought Trump might be a good idea or better than Hillary Clinton, or the person in the care home who's 80 and is scared about dying, they think this is a lunatic, right? And so the, the problem is that he's, he's got one political strategy and he's going back to it, and it's not going to solve the problem. What I've said in some of my columns in the past is, you know, an all caps tweet doesn't do anything against coronavirus. And, you know, saying that he's a victim doesn't help people, you know, 33 million people who've lost their jobs. So I, I think he's extremely ill-suited to leading right now and much worse suited to running a campaign. And Biden actually, you know, looks like, even though some people find him to be less exciting than some of the younger candidates in the Democratic field, you know, he was in the White House for eight years and he didn't, you know, he, he managed a recovery. So he looks like a safe pair of hands comparatively. Because, uh, uh, sorry, Brian, because you may, you may know this. So I don't, uh, I don't look at uh, Trump's tweets uh, because I'm trying to minimize the amount of tear duct exercise. Uh, and so, uh, but I know that he said that Obama did some crime and I saw the little clip where they were like, can you specify what crime? And he's like, you know what crime. Uh, but what what crime? <laughs> I, I really, it, has, there, has there been any explanation of what this supposed crime is supposed yeah, to have been? Yeah, and I'll try to explain it as simply as possible because you can go down the rabbit hole very quickly on this. I mean, there's this whole world of something called QAnon, which is this widespread belief among his base that the Democratic Party is a front for a series of, series of child sex trafficking rings totally insane, right? These are the people who shot up a pizza joint in Washington, D.C. because they believe that Hillary Clinton had sex slaves in the basement and it didn't even have a basement. So there's a series of crazy things that are floating around in Trump Twitter world. What a, what a cool, normal world. Yeah, well, I mean, don't, I mean they also, these people also went to an Ohio subway a week ago with literally a bazooka to order their subway sandwich. I mean, they're, they're photos of totally <laughs> crazy stuff. Um Oh, I'm so glad I didn't know yeah. that before. You, you Google it, you'll see the photos. I'm not making it up. Um, but this this latest charge, the very simple explanation is Michael Flynn, who used to be Trump's national security advisor and was an unregistered foreign agent who was paid $560,000 to spread propaganda on behalf of Turkey and also was directly paid by the Kremlin's propaganda outlet shortly before he became Trump's national security advisor, pleaded guilty to a felony for lying to investigators. Trump's argument is that the Department of Justice tried to entrap Flynn 
into admitting that he lied and lying to them. And so the claim that he pled guilty out of entrapment rather than the other series of nefarious things that he was involved in is supposed to be this plot of Obama trying to hurt Trump. That's the idea. Uh, it, it's total, total lunacy, but it's, that's what they think. Because Obama's kind of it has popped up again. I wonder if these two things are related, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's given quite a lot of uh, support and, and advice to his, his old Veep. Um, what do you make of Biden's performance since winning the nomination? You don't hear so many of these kind of allegations of, of cognitive decline, uh, you know, that were, that were going around during the primaries and that he wasn't, he wasn't up for it. Do you think that he's, do you think he sort of raised his game? During this crisis, yeah, I mean, I think I think what's uh, there's two things to say here. One is that the the attacks on Biden uh, are boomerang attacks because if you attack Biden for cognitive decline, I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to put out a video of Trump saying the most insane stuff for the last four years, right? Um, and stumbling over his words, slurring his words, all these things. So it's it's not an attack that's going to be effective because it's just like, well, you know. Biden seems very normal compared to Trump if you really want to go down that road. Um, and then the second thing to say is that the more that Biden is viewed by voters as generic Democrat, I actually think that's better for his chances to win. Because if this is an, if it's a referendum on Trump, then I think Trump is in very serious trouble. If the terms of the debate get to be about Biden scandal A or Biden scandal B, which has been, you know, pushed up by Trump and, and a series of disinformation campaigns, et cetera, that's bad territory for Biden to be on. So, you know, him sort of, he does these broadcasts from his basement on, on various, you know, video chat apps for TV shows. And he just sort of says normal stuff. Like, here's what we need to do to fix the problem. We need to have steady leadership. We need to have someone who is, you know, more worried about saving lives than his TV ratings. And, that stuff, you know, if that message just gets beat over and over and over, I think it's going to work. So Biden, you know, he's he's had a very consistent lead in the national polls, and there's very good uh, polling for him in a series of states that, uh, if he wins, Trump will absolutely lose. Roz, uh, Johnson's being compared to Trump sometimes, being uh, called a populist. But if you look at the the current situation. Um, or indeed someone like Bolsonaro, we talked about on, on, on Bunker Daily this week. Do you think the differences outweigh the similarities uh, at the moment? I mean, how, how, how similar do those figures seem during the, the virus? Well, I think there are different, completely different modes of incompetence, if you like, going on with Johnson and Trump. The thing that they have always had in common is a unique ability to connect with a section of the electorate. And for Trump, that has been partly done through rallies and partly through social media and his presence there, which was such so startlingly different from anything people had seen from politicians before. For Boris Johnson, um, it's the connection that he's had on TV. He doesn't have a social media game at all, Boris Johnson, quite interestingly, given the times that he lives in. He is no good at that and he is not interested in it. So the differences are pretty great because Johnson's lies are always, always serve a particular purpose of elevating Johnson, whereas Trump's 
lies are scattergun. They ran that they he's he's completely off the wall. With Johnson, you see a much more Machiavellian personality, someone who's much more adept at politics. And that for me is the key difference. Mm. Brian, when you were first on the show uh, a while back, we discussed how misinformation about the virus from from China was was a big issue. There's a lot of misinformation, obviously, in inside America. The Plandemic video is the latest uh, conspiracy, which seems to include Bill Gates, 5G, vaccines, Jeffrey Epstein, the Illuminati. George Soros has comp- made a complaint because he's feeling left out. Um, and it seems to be the sort of like a, a, a big sort of tangled Uber conspiracy. But what it made me wonder is, is Trump's base, uh, which is largely, I think, who this appeals to, not exclusively, sort of so radicalized now by Trump's own sort of paranoia, by Fox News, that just the average Trump voter uh, within the base is now to some extent a conspiracy theorist, that that's just, it, that is just a part of the mix now. Yes. Even if they don't swallow the whole, th- you know, this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes, basically, right? I mean, tr- Trump is Trump is a conspiracy theorist himself. He peddles them all the time. Um, his favored news outlet is no longer Fox News because he thinks they're too harsh on him, which is insane because all they do all day is say how great he is. But he's now been promoting this one called OAN, which is, I mean, you, you wouldn't believe. I mean, if, if you Google it, the stuff that they're putting out there about Bill Gates' involvement in you know a deep state plot to actually spread COVID-19 when he's spending a huge amount of his wealth on trying to you know support vaccine programs and, and actual solutions... Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's just a series of conspiracy-driven thinking, um, and and the U.S. has been prone to this for a long time. This conspiratorial-minded politics has existed for a while, but Trump has really tapped into it. And I also think the the scary thing about this, and this is the the really big worry I have, you know, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a alarmist with this stuff, but I'm genuinely quite worried about it. Is the intersection between the conspiratorial thinking and the the guns because um, you know, Trump had these three tweets a couple weeks ago where he called on his supporters to liberate, that was the word he used, um, the states. One of the tweets uh, involving liberating Virginia had made a reference to the Second Amendment, which is, you know, the one that protects gun ownership in the U.S. And all of a sudden, all these people with assault rifles and masks and bazookas at subways um, took to the, you know, took to the state capitals. Even in Michigan, they, they stormed the Capitol building. And so what really worries me is the combination of that and the potential for violence there, along with the fact that Trump is now saying that the Democrats are trying to rig the election because he can see that he might lose. And so the scary world, I think, that we may find ourselves in in November is one in which Trump loses, disputes the results, claims the deep state rigged it against him, and this small but very dangerous minority of Americans use the language that's being now daily um, spread on Fox News of a coup plot. That's what they they, they call it, a coup against Trump. Um, they use the language of political violence and turn it into you know, somebody who's unwell turns it into actual violence. And you know, I mean, that's it, it's a thing I never would have thought about saying a couple of years ago. But I I am genuinely worried about political violence around the November election. 
How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, while it's been a difficult time for us all, spare a thought for America's preppers and doomsday fetishists who are feeling crushed because this was not the apocalypse they were promised. The average open-carry Ayn Rand disciple expected The Walking Dead meets Duke Nukem when it all went down, but their fantasies of standing alone and heroic have fallen well short. Instead, across the Western world, we've seen clap for carers, neighbourhood help schemes, outpouring of altruism and goodwill, and endless loaves of banana bread. Our own less heavily armed society deniers have been similarly disappointed. Um, Ros, a lot of right-wing uh, libertarians don't seem to be as robust under pressure as they make out. Is it strange that the same sort of political tendency that, that produces most these preppers and doomsday fetishists is sort of wailing that not being able to have a haircut is a sign of totalitarianism? No, it's not really, because I think a key part of the preppers' dream, and one of the reasons why it's such a big force in America, is the dream of open-air liberation, you know, uh, striding across Utah, crunching women underfoot. Um, you know, the, tr- the trouble is we're all shut in and we're not, we're not actually making a bear trap with a pen knife, which, <laughs> which would be the, the dream. You're, you're, you're being stopped from, from expressing yourself freely. And that, that's what they have a problem with. Um, Brian, what is the, the sort of, um, the profile of your average doomsday prepper. What's the kind of uh, what's the sort of psychological and political blend that goes into this kind of uh, subculture? Well, you know, it's um, it's concentrated geographically in the U.S. The big the big sort of oasis of prepper communities is in places like Idaho, really rural areas um, where you can build your bunker and you can have your forty two building compound, and it costs like twelve thousand dollars because land is effectively free. Um, and you know, that's, that's sort of where it is. There's a lot of people who are conspiratorial minded. They think there's this plot again by the deep state and sort of setting up the new world order and all these things that they have to prepare for. The irony of course, is that like, you know, when there actually is a pandemic, what they're doing is instead of going to their bunkers, they are going to subway with their weapons and demanding a meatball sub and that the system, you know, the system reopens itself, and everybody gets sick. It's, it's the most bizarre thing, right? Like you have like your two hundred, you know, meal rations in like your freezer bag in your, you know, 12, 12 foot underground bunker, and instead you're attacking the governor of Michigan in a crowd, uh, you know, with a gun, saying, "Please let me get my haircut." And so it's sort of it's just this bizarre, you know, like, okay, guys, it's finally your time to shine. Go underground, you know. 
Well, if, if the fundamental premise is that sort of, um, you know, crisis comes, government collapses, anarchy ensues, only the strong who have studied the way of the sword will survive, um, <laughs> is, is the sort of robust state intervention and, and really still, you know, mass civil obedience, you know, there's, you, you, you're talking sort of 85, 90% in, um, you know, who do support a, a lockdown. Is that just a great disappointment in terms of them, sort of their ideology, their view of of human nature, you know, <laughs> that things aren't actually on the verge of collapse. Well, I think I think the problem is that if you if you put there's there's this thing in political science we talk about called motivated reasoning, which is basically you, every new piece of information is filtered through your pre-existing beliefs about who's telling you the information and how it fits in that theory. And so, like everything that's happening is actually confirming their beliefs, right? So when there's 85 percent support for government policy of lockdowns. That's not because it's good public health advice and sensible. It's because the government has created a coddled and compliant citizenry, right? And this is just part of their plot to take over and enslave us all. So every single thing is sort of like filtered through this prism um, in which the government is the big bad wolf. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all come to, you know, it's going to take away your children, all this stuff. So, you know, I think trying to understand this through a rational mindset is a fool's errand. You have to understand it through the mindset of someone who already does not accept basic facts about how society functions. And then you start to figure out, okay, now this makes a little bit more sense. Well, we, of course, I, you know, I said, oh, this is an anti-climax. All of them must be very disappointed. But of course, that's not how their, their brains work. So it's like the classic example of the, you know, the doomsday cult that tried to that walk up to the top of the hill, wait for the world to end. It doesn't end, and instead of going, "Oh, hang on, we must have we must have been mistaken. What were we thinking?" You know, they kind of go, "Oh well, it, we must have been a year out. We'll 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 keep going." The people are not prone to going. I've wasted my life building this bunker, are they? No, I mean, and it's like it's sort of like a sunk cost, right? Like if you've already built the bunker, you are always going to believe that it's necessary. <laughs> oh. Oh, here during the initial stages of this outbreak, when everyone was scrambling for loo roll and yeast, um, were, were you briefly envious of the uh, of the preppers and their their well stocked bunkers? Did you did you see the did you appreciate the uh, the urge? Well, I had very little reason to be uh, envious because I firstly uh, was into yeast before it was cool. Uh, and secondly, as a man of Indian descent, uh, have always been aware that Lural is an option rather than a necessity. Uh, so that was, that was never particularly a concern. Um, for me. I think uh, it, it's worth bearing in mind uh, something that is relevant uh, in terms of the people who we've been discussing. Uh, it, is, it is worth noting that we're fundamentally talking about the people that Dave Chappelle refers to as, in inverted commas, the tiki torch whites. Uh, and of course, I myself could not go in front of a town hall with a machine gun because I would be, wait for it, shot in the back. Uh, and so there's, there's certainly, there's an interesting profile uh, to uh, the people who are involved in this, and it's not one that I uh, fit. So I just sort of got on with my day. Well, when you know the sort of history, for example, of, you know, the Black Black Panthers and how suddenly, uh, you know, there were, the people really did want to limit access to guns once the Black Panthers started using them. You have to imagine if the guy in Subway with a bazooka on his back had not been white. 
Um, yeah. Oh, I would. Lo- don't get me wrong. I would love to go into Subway with a bazooka. <laughs> it sounds like heaps of fun, right? And it's not really necessarily a lockdown thing. It's just like I think that I would enjoy. Like, and also I wouldn't do it in a threatening way. Like, I'd do it and be like, "Guys, check out this bazooka. Do you want to have a go?" Uh, like, I'd I'd share. Um, but yes, again. Shot in the back. Well, I be- but I believe under the new regulations, you can, in Britain, you can go into Subway with a bazooka on as long as you stay alert. And yeah, keep but two not if my mum's there. Keep a bazooka <laughs> distance. If, I'm pretty sure the person making the <laughs> Not if my mum's there unless she's cleaning the Subway, I think. <laughs> you could protect the NHS with a bazooka for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to bazooka the virus to own the libs. I can't wait. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape route from politics and indeed from their own houses. What's even more entertaining than watching Philip Schofield say asked? Uh, Roz, what's your diversion of choice at the moment? Well, I really want to watch some TV and I'm just not having any time to watch TV for complex reasons uh, to do with kids and work. I just have no time to myself anymore. Um, so I, I, I got halfway through Normal People, which is great. I really want to watch the rest of it. And I understand there's all kinds of brilliant stuff like Orthodox and Babylon Berlin, which I desperately want to watch but can't. But I will say that uh, a few days ago I was out on daily exercise with the kids and we found a snake. It was really exciting because you don't normally find snakes. Yeah, a real one. Um, admittedly, it was just a grass snake, uh, so so not a, not a point. I now want to exercise even less than I did before. <laughs> uh, but it was great because I, 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 you know, I posted a picture of the snake on Twitter and said, you know, please identify this snake for me. And people were piling and saying, oh, it's a beauty. Oh, look, it's shedding its skin. Oh, lovely. I just love it. And they were all, you know, getting so so delighted over this snake, and that cheered me up for a bit. Brian, what's your escape route? With, with the lockdowns and all the bad news out there, the the funny thing that I've found is I don't want to watch anything new. I just want comfort food. Um, and so this is where I am like way older in my TV taste than I am in in reality. I've been watching like a ton of Poirot, which is like super, oh, nice. super nerdy, but it's just like, I don't know. Is that, is that, is that Suchet? Yeah, yeah, Suchet, which yeah one? like the 1989 Suchet. ITV right. Poirot. I don't know. This is like super calming. And uh, recently I've also gotten into the 1966 to 1968 Batman series, uh, which is hilarious. I mean, it's, it's like so over the top um, and the outfits are ridiculous, but it's just, I don't know. It's like everything sucks. So like in 1966, <laughs> Batman didn't suck. And in 1989, Poirot was sort of interesting. So. <laughs> No, totally. I think that Poirot would be good because so David Suchet is a man who, sort of like uh, the actor David Haig, they're men who got old, young, and then just stayed that way for mm. absolutely ages. And uh, I think that uh, that's a, that would be a very curative thing in these days of thinking about one's own mortality more frequently than usual, to just see men who have been frozen in time for the last 30 years. Quite pleasant. What's yours, I hear? I'm getting into flowers, Dorian. Oh. Getting into flowers. Uh, it's my thing now. Uh, every week I do my uh, weekly shop and the shop sells flowers and I get some flowers and I arrange the shit out of them. Uh, got, some, got some flowers on the desk. Uh, so nice, nice flowers while I'm doing my work. Uh, there's some flowers in the bedroom. Lovely thing to wake up to. All right. Uh, this week... The, the, this last week uh, gone has been a lily week. 
Got to watch out for that pollen. Didn't know that before the lockdown. Got to watch out for that pollen. So that's that's my need. And I would say this to other people. Don't like, don't like go out of your way to get flowers and then get ill because that would be grossly irresponsible. But if you have to be out anyway because you're getting food and the other things which stop you from dying, then honey pee, treat yourself, yeah. watch them bloom. It's lovely. My sister's got peonies at her house. We send each other photographs of our flowers, Dorian. So if you're, if you're going to work on a construction site this week, uh, get some flowers on your way, on your way back. home. Pick up some flowers. Yeah. Uh, so my escape route, uh, sort of similar, so impulse to, to Brian, this kind of uh, comfort food uh, thing, Watch rewatching lots of old movies, and which it turns out, you know, I've always forgotten mostly what happened. I remember the title and about one person who was in it and the rest is just this wonderful <laughs> mystery. Um, and Big Night has come onto Netflix, which is a 96 <laughs> film uh, co-directed by and co-written by Stanley Tucci about two brothers who own a, an authentic Italian restaurant in, I think, is it New Jersey or Long Island, somewhere like that in the 60s? And um, and it doesn't go very well. But it's, it's all building up to this massive uh, feast of the big night. And it's an incredibly kind of sensitive, beautiful, funny film. But also a huge part of the running time is taken up with the best meal that you've ever seen. And because I miss restaurants and human company and getting drunk and dancing around. Um, this is just like the vicarious thrill. I actually wept during the meal because I was just like, can you imagine being able to do that? Uh, so I recommend that. It's on, uh, it's on UK Netflix at the moment. Dorian, I'm really into the idea of you re-watching films that you've already seen and being absolutely bamboozled by the twists that you already knew. Like, you just want, again, being like... <laughs> A ghost? The whole time? No, fuck off. No way. The name of the sled? Are you kidding me? No. It's, it's all the other bits. Which I watched, rewatched Adaptation and I was like, all I remember is there were like two Nicolas Cages in it and it was about orchids. The rest of it was just like, fucking hell, this is mental. I don't remember the name. Um, so there we go. I recommend also having a bad memory. That's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to our panel, Brian Class, Ahir Shah, and Roz Taylor. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. And don't forget, you can now back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor, Ahir Shah and Brian Klass. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>